Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight, we continue our story, The Brother and Sister, by Mary Shelley. Lorenzo anxiously asked whither she had been straying. Her explanation was soon given, and he in turn related the misfortunes of the morning, the fate that impended over him, averted by the generous intercession of young Fabian himself. And yet, he hesitated to unfold the bitter truth. He was not freely pardoned. He stood there a banished man, condemned to die if the morrow's sun found him within the walls of Siena. They had arrived, meanwhile, at their home. With feminine care, Flora placed a simple repast before her brother, and then employed herself busily in making various packages. Lorenzo paced the room, absorbed in thought. At length he stopped, and, kissing the fair girl, said, Where can I place thee in safety? How preserve thee, my flower of beauty, while we are divided? Flora looked up fearfully. Do I not go with you? she asked. I was making preparations for our journey. Impossible, dearest. I go to privation and hardship, and I would share them with thee. It may not be, sweet sister, replied Lorenzo. Fate divides us, and we must submit. I go to camps, to the society of rude men, to struggle with such fortunes as cannot harm me, but which for thee would be fraught with peril and despair. No, my Flora, I must provide safe and honorable guardianship for thee even in this town. And again, Lorenzo meditated deeply on the part he should take, till suddenly a thought flashed on his mind. It is hazardous, he murmured, and yet I do him wrong to call it so. Were our fates reversed, should I not think myself honored by such a trust? And then he told his sister to don hastily her best attire, to wrap her veil round her, and to come with him. She obeyed, for obedience to her brother was the first and dearest of her duties. But she wept bitterly while her trembling fingers braided her long hair and she hastily changed her dress. At length, walked forth again, and proceeded slowly, as Lorenzo employed the precious minutes in consoling and counseling his sister. He promised as speedy a return as he could accomplish, but if he failed to appear as soon as he could wish, yet he vowed solemnly that, if alive and free, she should see him within five years from the moment of parting. Should he not come before, he besought her earnestly to take patience, and to hope for the best till the expiration of that period, and made her promise not to bind herself by any vestal or matrimonial vow in the interval. They had arrived at their destination and entered the courtyard of a spacious palace. They met no servants, so crossed the court, and ascended the ample stairs. Flora had endeavored to listen to her brother. He had bade her be of good cheer and he was about to leave her. He told her to hope, and he spoke of an absence to endure five years 
an endless term to her youthful anticipations. She promised obedience, but her voice was choked by sobs, and her tottering limbs would not have supported her without his aid. She now perceived that they were entering the lighted and inhabited rooms of a noble dwelling and tried to restrain her tears as she drew her veil closely around her. They passed from room to room, in which preparations for festivity were making. The servants ushered them on as if they had been invited guests and conducted them into a hall filled with all the nobility and beauty of Siena. Each eye turned with curiosity and wonder on the pair. Lorenzo's tall person and the lofty expression of his handsome countenance put the ladies in good humor with him, while the cavaliers tried to peep under Flora's veil. It is a mere child, they said, and a sorrowing one. What could this mean? The youthful master of the house, however, instantly recognized his uninvited and unexpected guest. But before he could ask the meaning of coming, Lorenzo had advanced with his sister to the spot where he stood and addressed him. I never thought, Count Fabian, to stand beneath your roof, and much less to approach you as a suitor. But that supreme power to whose decrees we must all bend has reduced me to such adversity. If it be his will, may also visit you. Notwithstanding the many friends that now surround you, and the sunshine of prosperity in which you bask, I stand here, a banished man and a beggar. Nor do I repine at this my fate. Most willing am I that my right arm alone should create my fortunes, and with the blessing of God I hope so to direct my course, that we may yet meet upon more equal terms. In this hope I turn my steps, not unwillingly, from the city. Dear as its name is to my heart, and dear the associations which link its proud towers with the memory of my forefathers, I leave it a soldier of fortune. How I may return is written in the page where your unread destiny is traced, as well as mine. But my care ends not with myself. My dying father bequeathed to me this child, my orphan sister whom I have until now watched over with a parent's love. I should ill perform the part entrusted to me were I to drag this tender blossom from its native bower into the rude highways of life. Lord Fabian, I can count no man my friend, for it would seem that your smiles have won the hearts of my fellow citizens from me, and death and exile have so dealt with my house that not one of my name exists within the walls of Siena. To you alone can I entrust this precious charge. Will you accept it until called upon to render it back to me, her brother? or unto the juster hands of our Creator, pure and untarnished as I now deliver her to you. I ask you to protect her helplessness, to guard her honor. Will you, dare you accept a treasure with the assurance of restoring it unsoiled, unhurt? The deep, expressive voice of the noble youth and his earnest eloquence enchained the ears of the whole assembly. And when he ceased, Fabian, proud of the appeal and nothing loath in the buoyant spirit of youth to undertake a charge which, thus proffered before his assembled kinsmen and friends, became an honor, answered readily, I agree, 
and solemnly before heaven accept your offer. I declare myself the guardian and protector of your sister. She shall dwell in safety beneath my kind mother's care, and if the saints permit your return, she shall be delivered back to you as spotless as she now is. Lorenzo bowed his head. Something choked his utterance as he thought that he was about to part forever from Flora, but he disdained to betray this weakness before his enemies. He took his sister's hand and gazed upon her slight form with a look of earnest fondness. Then, murmuring a blessing over her and kissing her brow, he again saluted Count Fabian and, turning away with measured steps and lofty mien, left the hall. Flora, scarcely understanding what had passed, stood trembling and weeping under her veil. She yielded her passive hand to Fabian, who, leading her to his mother, said, Madam, I ask of your goodness and the maternal indulgence you have ever shown to assist me in fulfilling my promise by taking under your gracious charge this young orphan. You command here, my son, said the countess, and your will shall be obeyed. Then, making a sign to one of her attendants, Flora was conducted from the hall to where, in solitude and silence, she wept over her brother's departure and her own strange position. Flora thus became an inmate of the dwelling of her ancestral foes and the ward of the most bitter enemy of her house. Lorenzo was gone, she knew not whither, and her only pleasure consisted in reflecting that she was obeying his behests. Her life was uniform and tranquil. Her occupation was working tapestry in which she displayed taste and skill. Sometimes she had the more mortifying task imposed on her, of waiting on the Countess de Ptolemy, who, having lost two brothers in the last contest with the Mancini, nourished a deep hatred toward the whole race and never smiled on the luckless orphan. Flora submitted to every command imposed upon her. She was buoyed up by the reflection that her sufferings were imposed upon her by Lorenzo, schooling herself in any moment of impatience by the idea that thus she shared his adversity. No murmur escaped her, though the pride and independence of her nature were often cruelly offended by the taunts and supercilious airs of her patroness or mistress, who was not a bad woman, but who thought it virtue to ill-treat a Mancini. Often, indeed, she neither heard nor heeded these things. Her thoughts were far away, and grief for the loss of her brother's society weighed too heavily on her, to allow her to spend more than a passing sigh on her personal injuries. The countess was unkind and disdainful, but it was not thus with Flora's companions. They were amiable and affectionate girls, either of the bourgeois class or daughters of dependents of the House of Ptolemy. The length of time which had elapsed since the overthrow of the Mancini had erased from their young minds the bitter duty of hatred and it was impossible for them to live on terms of daily intercourse with the orphaned daughter of this ill-fated race, and not to become strongly attached to her. She was wholly devoid of selfishness and content to perform her daily tasks in inoffensive silence. She had no envy, no wish to shine, no desire of pleasure. She was nevertheless ever ready to sympathize with her companions and glad to have it in her power to administer to their happiness. To help them in the manufacture of some piece of finery, to assist them in their work, 
and perfectly prudent and reserved herself, to listen to all their sentimental adventures, to give her best advice, and to aid them in any difficulty, were the simple means she used to win their unsophisticated hearts. They called her an angel, they looked up to her as a saint, and in their hearts respected her more than the countess herself. One only subject ever disturbed Flora's serene melancholy. The praise she perpetually heard lavished on Count Fabian, her brother's too successful rival and oppressor, was an unendurable addition to her other griefs. Content with her own obscurity, her ambition, her pride, her aspiring thoughts were spent upon her brother. She hated Count Fabian as Lorenzo's destroyer and the cause of his unhappy exile. His accomplishments she despised as painted vanities. His person she condemned as the opposite of his prototype. His blue eyes, clear and open as day, his fair complexion and light brown hair, his slight, elegant person, his voice, whose tones and song won each listener's heart to tenderness and love, his wit, his perpetual flow of spirits, and unalterable good humor were impertinences and frivolities to her who cherished with such dear worship the recollection of her serious, ardent, noble-hearted brother, whose soul was ever sent on high thoughts and devoted to acts of virtue and self-sacrifice, whose fortitude and affectionate courtesy seemed to her the crown and glory of manhood. How different from the trifling flippancy of Fabian! Name an eagle, she would say, and we raise our eyes to heaven, there to behold a creature fashioned in nature's bounty, but it is a degradation to waste one thought on the insect of a day. Some speech similar to this had been kindly reported to the young Count's lady mother, who idolized her son as the ornament and delight of his age and country. She severely reprimanded the incautious Flora, who, for the first time, listened proudly and unyieldingly. From this period, her situation grew more irksome. All she could do was to endeavor to withdraw herself entirely from observation and brood over the perfections, while she lamented yet more keenly the absence of her brother. Two or three years thus flew away, and Flora grew from a childish-looking girl of twelve into the bewitching beauty of fifteen. She unclosed like a flower, whose fairest petals are yet shut, but whose half-veiled loveliness is yet more attractive. It was at this time that an occasion of doing honor to a prince of France, who was passing on to Naples, the Countess Ptolemy and her son, with a bevy of friends and followers, went out to meet and to escort the royal traveler on his way. Assembled in the hall of the palace and waiting for the arrival of some of their number, Count Fabian went round his mother's circle, saying agreeable and merry things to all. Whenever his cheerful blue eyes lighted, their smiles were awakened, and each young heart beat with vanity at his harmless flatteries. After a gallant speech or two, he espied Flora, retired behind her What flower is this, he said, playing at hide-and-seek with her beauty, and then, struck by the modest sweetness of her aspect, her eyes cast down and a rosy blush mantling over her cheek, he added, What fair angel makes one of your company? An angel indeed, my lord, exclaimed one of the younger girls, 
who dearly loved her best friend. She is Flora Mancini. Mancini! exclaimed Fabian, while his manner became at once respectful and kind. Are you the orphan daughter of Hugo, the sister of Lorenzo, committed by him to my care? For since then, through her careful avoidance, Fabian had never ever seen his fair ward. She bowed in assent to his questions, while her swelling heart denied her speech, and Fabian, going up to his mother, said, Madam, I hope for our honor's sake that this has not before happened. The adverse fortune of this young lady may render retirement and obscurity befitting, but it is not for us to turn into a menial one sprung from the best blood in Italy. Let me entreat you not to permit this to occur again. How shall I redeem my pledged honor or answer to her brother for this unworthy degradation? You have me make a friend and a companion of Manzini? asked the countess with raised color. I ask you not, mother, to do aught displeasing to you, replied noble. But Flora is my ward, not our servant. Permit her to retire. She will probably prefer the privacy of home to making one among the festive crowd of her house's enemies. If not, let the choice be hers. Say, gentle one, will you go with us or retire? She did not speak, but raising her soft eyes, curtsied to him and to his mother, and quitted the room, so tacitly making her selection. From this time, Flora never quitted the more secluded apartments of the palace, nor again saw Fabian. She was unaware that he had been profuse in his eulogium on her beauty, but that while frequently expressing his interest in his ward, he rather avoided the dangerous power of her loveliness. She led rather a prison life, walking only in the palace garden when it was else deserted, but otherwise her time was at her own disposal, and no commands now interfered with freedom. Her labors were all spontaneous. The countess seldom even saw her, and she lived among this lady's attendants like a free boarder in a convent, who cannot quit the walls, but who is not subservient to the rules of the asylum. She was more busy than ever at her tapestry frame, because the countess prized her work, and thus she could in some degree repay the protection afforded her. She never mentioned Fabian and always imposed silence on her companions when they spoke of him. But she did this in no disrespectful terms. He is a generous enemy, I acknowledge, she would say. But still, he is my enemy, and while through him my brother is an exile and a wanderer upon earth, it is painful for me to hear his name. After the lapse of many months spent in entire seclusion and tranquility, a change occurred in the tenor of her life. The countess suddenly resolved to pass the Easter festival at Rome. Flora's companions were wild with joy at the prospect of the journey, the novelty, and the entertainment they promised themselves from this visit, and pitied the dignity of their friend, which prevented her from making one in their mistress's train, for it was soon understood that Flora was to be left behind, and she was informed that the interval of the lady's absence was to be passed by her in a villa belonging to the family situated in a sequestered nook among the neighboring Apennines. The countess departed in pomp and pride on her so-called pilgrimage to the sacred city, and at the same time, Flora was conveyed to her rural retreat. 
the villa was inhabited only by the peasant and his family, who cultivated the farm or podea attached to it, and the old cassia or housekeeper. Cheerfulness and freedom of the country were delightful, and the entire solitude consonant to the habits of the meditative girl, accustomed to the confinement of the city and the intrusive prattle of her associates. Spring was opening with all the beauty which that season showers upon favored Italy. The almond and peach trees were in blossom, and the vine dresser sang at his work, perched with his pruning knife among the vines. Blossoms and flowers in laughing plenty graced the soil, and the trees, swelling with buds ready to expand into leaves, seemed to feel the life that animated their dark old boughs. Flora was enchanted. The country labors interested her, and the hoarded experience of old Sandra was a treasure house of wisdom and amusement. Her attention had hitherto been directed to giving the most vivid hues and truest imitation to her transcript with her needle of some picture given her as a model, but here was a novel occupation. She learned the history of the bees, watched the habits of the birds, and inquired into the culture of plants. Sandra was delighted with her new companion, and, though notorious for being cross, yet could wriggle her antique lips into smiles for Flora. To repay the kindness of her guardian and his mother, she still devoted much time to her needle. This occupation but engaged half her attention, and, while she pursued it, she could give herself up to endless reverie on the subject of Lorenzo's fortunes. Three years had flown since he had left her, and, except a little gold cross brought to her by a pilgrim from Milan, but one month after his departure, she had received no tidings of him. Whether from Milan he had proceeded to France, Germany, or the Holy Land, she did not know. By turns her fancy led him to either of those places, and fashioned the course of events that might have befallen him. She figured to herself this toilsome journeys, his life in the camp, his achievements, and the honors showered on him by kings and nobles. Her cheek glowed at the praises he received, and her eye kindled with delight as it imaged him standing with modest pride and an erect and gentle mien before them. Then the fair enthusiast paused. It crossed her recollection like a shadow that, if all had gone prosperously, he had returned to share his prosperity with her, and her faltering heart turned to sadder scenes to account for his protracted absence. Sometimes, while thus employed, she brought her work into the trellised arbor of the garden, or, when it was too warm for the open air, she had a favorite shady window which looked down a deep ravine into a majestic wood, whence the sound of falling water met her ears. One day, while she employed her fingers upon the spirited likeness of a hound, which made a part of the hunting piece she was working for the countess, a sharp, wailing cry suddenly broke on her ear, followed by the trampling of horses and the hurried steps and loud vociferations of men. They entered the villa on the opposite side from that which her window commanded, but the noise continuing, she rose to ask the reason when Sandra burst into the room crying, Oh, Madonna! He is dead. He has been thrown from his horse and he will never speak more. We'll continue this story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the lookout for great public domain stories to read. And if you know of any, please email bigvoicej at gmail.com. 
We've got a YouTube channel for you to all listen to all through the night. tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every page and post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>